Please be seated. Uh, before we begin, I just wanted to encourage you guys. I know it's mid-season, uh, mid-season mid-term season. Um, it is raining, so you uh, don't feel like doing anything, and you're getting sick, and uh, we just ate up your weekend last week with retreat. You got a lot of things going on. Uh, stay faithful with your studies. Um, be, be good workers, be good stewards in that sense. Uh, I'm praying for you guys uh, almost every day, just that you guys would be uh, shining lights just even in the way that you live as students. So uh, stick it through this uh, few weeks as things get harder and tests seem more impossible. Uh, it's a good time to uh, show everyone what your faith is all about, just the way that you study. All right? Well, tonight as we continue our series on the virtue of humility, I want to remind us of where we have been so far in our series. First, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the danger of pride, the destructive and pervasive nature of humility's greatest enemy, that is pride, how we are in so many ways, so many manifestations in our life of contending for supremacy with God, how we are putting ourselves on the throne where he belongs. And then last week we began to construct a basic understanding of humility, what we called the ABCs of humility, how humility is the act of assessing oneself rightly. This idea in Romans 12, verse 3, uh, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but instead thinking of ourselves with sober or with sound judgment, with right thinking. And then how that accurate assessing must be uh, on the basis of things outside of ourselves, of how we think about God and the gospel and even others in the church. And then we talked about how humility is a consistent endeavor for the Christian. It's not a one-time thing. It's every day and even every moment that we ought to think rightly of ourselves. Really all part, uh, an integral part of an entire life of worship to God. And so as we seek to cultivate humility, we talked about big picture last week, how we must both seek to eliminate pride. We must put off the old self, but we must also live out a right or a biblical view of ourselves. We must put on the new self. Well, tonight we're going to fill out the picture that we've been creating of true Christian humility. Let's continue to paint the landscape, so to speak, of humility. This landscape so far, it has that, that elephant graveyard of our pride, but then last week we have this picturesque, green, lush, vibrant scene of growing Christian humility. So let's begin to fill that picture out and color it in. This picture of humility is the scene that Isaiah 66.2 describes. It's what we began our series with. The kind of life of which God says, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. This is the kind of life we are trying to paint a picture of tonight, to 
a life that God sets his gaze upon because it is worship to him. And so let's fill that out. Let's color it in. And to fill that out, we, we need some trees to fill out our landscape. These trees, they bear fruit. should remind you of Matthew 7, Jesus' own words. Every good tree bears what? Good fruit. And that analogy in Scripture can be taken in several directions. Galatians 5 takes that and shows us uh, the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of righteousness. And there's other various ways that that is taken both positively and negatively in the New Testament. But for our purposes tonight, the fruit of these trees is the, is the fruit of humility, character, and habits that grow out of a truly humble heart. And so our aim tonight is to deepen our understanding of what humility should look like in the believer's life. Uh, how the fundamentally Christian posture of rightly assessing oneself before God, uh, others, and the gospel, what that looks like as it flows into this life of worship, what it looks like as it renews the mind and transforms our lives. Gavin Ortland puts it this way. He says, humility is more than simply one virtue to aim at. It is to be the atmosphere and quality in which we experience all of life. And so tonight, this is humility characterized. This is humility demonstrated in a life. Tonight, we're going to move fast, but we'll see ten fruits of humility. We're going to look at in rapid succession ten fruits of humility, and we'll move fast and we'll flip to a lot of passages, so uh, be ready. Uh, these are the character and the habits of a humble person. In other words, ten things that humility, if it were to be a person, is or does. The first of those fruits is that humility expresses gratitude. Humility expresses gratitude. Turn to 1 Corinthians 4, and we need to look at just one verse to help us just frame what expressing gratitude should look like, what knowing and rightly assessing ourselves before what we've received should look like. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it. Here Paul is shepherding the Corinthian church through conflict, and he is reminding them in that, that everything they have, every ability, every opportunity, every blessing, is a gracious gift from God. And Grace on Campus, the same is true of us in so many ways we are humble recipients of God's great blessing. And yet in our pride, we so often ignore the kindness and generosity of God. We lapse into thinking that we've earned everything we are and everything we have. Well, in humility, in rightly thinking about ourselves and about God, 
we must remember that God has given us literally everything we have. There is nothing we have that we have not received from Him. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 is telling us. We know this verse, James 1, 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. GOC, He has given us life and breath and He has given us spiritual life and He's abundantly supplied more than we could ask or think in every station in life and He continues to do so. And that should drive us to gratitude, to thanksgiving. When you go over to someone's house for dinner and you eat and you finish that delicious meal, whatever delicious means to you, the food that just popped into your brain, when you finish that meal, you don't pat yourself on the back and say to yourself, oh, what a great job I did. No, you say thank you to your host because you are a guest. You are on the receiving end of that meal and of that hospitality. How much more, Grace on Campus, ought we to recognize ourselves as humble recipients before the Lord God Almighty who has brought us into the wedding feast from the highways and the byways. We've been summoned in and given a seat at the table made sons and daughters, and then given so much such that we have no lack. Turn to Psalm 103. I just want to read a few verses from one of my favorite psalms. Psalm 103 it expresses the thanksgiving we ought to have. Psalm 103, the first five verses of David, the psalm is, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Friends, we ought to, with humility of heart, recognize all of God's good gifts in our lives. And we must regularly rehearse His generosity to us in our hearts. And we must rejoice in it. And we must express appreciation to God in prayer and in worship and in testifying of God's goodness to others. We must be a thankful people, rightly assessing God as giver, seeing all His good gifts, and seeing and knowing ourselves to be blessed recipients. Humility expresses gratitude. Secondly, humility knows it needs help. Humility knows it needs help. True Christian humility is aware of its own need. True Christian humility is aware of its own lack. True Christian humility is aware of its own inability. The humble person needs help in so many ways, all the time. In the gospel, we see our need on a basic level. You see, there is nothing we can do to earn our way to God. He has done it all. He has, through his son Jesus, 
freely forgiven us. And so our, our, need is for, our need for help is so clear on a basic level in the gospel, but it does not end there. Consider Galatians 3.3. 3. Paul writes there, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What Paul is saying there is that you've been saved, you've started by the Spirit, you've begun by the Spirit. And so you should continue by the Spirit, not by your own works of the flesh. We know this truth, yet so often we are self-sufficient. We don't need help. We prop ourselves up. We've taken the gifts and abilities God has given us, and we've run off to do our own thing. We're good on our own now. Thanks for the salvation. Uh, I can run in my own lane. I'll see you at the end of my life in eternity and when I need help along the way. That's our pride. Christian, if you think rightly about yourself, how you stand before God, not only a sinner saved and restored to right relationship with Him, only by His grace, but that also you think of yourself rightly in that you continue and are kept and are given strength every day to persevere also and only by His grace, then you will begin to, in humility, realize how much help you will always need. And you will begin to find great confidence and confidence, though, only in the power of God. It will turn into really a, a joyful dependence on Him. We looked at this verse earlier this year, Philippians 1.6. This is Paul's confidence, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Christian, being joyfully dependent we ought to be humble people who are not insecure, who, who, who don't feel the need to perform or please anymore. Humble people, they don't need to constantly position themselves in front of other people. Humble people don't take themselves so seriously that they're the only viable solution in even practical situations. There is a replaceability and a deference to humility. A knowledge that it needs help. And it's a help found in God and a help found in others around you. You see, humility's first instinct when it wakes up isn't to kick into beast mode to conquer the checklist. Humility's first instinct when it wakes up is to ask the Lord for strength to face the day. And then when humility ends the day, it isn't afraid to sleep, it isn't afraid to rest, it isn't afraid to stop because it trusts God for tomorrow. If you are humble, you know you need help. And so through and through, the humble person is dependent not on self, but on God for everything. And then on others through whom God does work and provide and help. Humility knows it needs help. Another one of the main ways humility finds a great portion of that help is that humility seeks God's wisdom. Third, humility seeks God's wisdom. 
You see, humility realizes and recognizes that the wisdom and the ways of God are higher than our thoughts, wiser than our wisdom, greater than all we are. There is plain and intrinsic connection between humility of heart and seeking wisdom, God's wisdom. You see, if you are humble, you know you need help. And you know you don't know. And you also know you need to go where you know there is great help. And the Christian knows there is great help in God's word. 2 Peter 1.3, he has given us everything for life and for godliness. 2 Timothy 3, uh, all scripture is inspired by God. And it's the scripture that's given to us, by the way, revealed in his word. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It is all sufficient. And yet God's word is not just plopped down on our table for us to figure out. Consider Psalm 25.9. It speaks of God's kindness in giving us his word and leading us. It says there, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. GOC, our ministry is so proximate to God's wisdom. We preach, we disciple, we equip, we discuss, we sing God's word, God's wisdom, truth upon truth of it. And that is a huge blessing. Don't take it for granted. But in that proximity, there can be great danger. You see, we can confuse proximity or even regularity for a proper posture of humility. In humility, we must not just be near God's Word or be present when it happens. We must, in humility, incline our ear. We must ready our hearts every morning, every sermon every small group time we must prepare to seek and to receive God's word not just by default but to rightly assess our own need and then be led by God in the paths of righteousness my prayer for our ministry is that we would have the psalmist's heart in Psalm 119 there's so many good portions of Psalm 119 that I could read to you but Psalm 119, I like 145. This is the psalmist's cry, the psalmist's prayer. 119, 145. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. They draw me near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. May this be our prayer, the cry of our hearts. Humility seeks God's wisdom. Fourthly, humility prays in submission to God's will. 
humility prays in submission to God's will. Most of us would admit that we have a poor prayer life. I think we are all honest enough to say that, at least in small group. We all struggle to pray like we should. And at the same time, we wonder why, even in these past few weeks, our pursuit of humility becomes so quickly such a fleshly, prideful struggle to prove ourselves humble, to become humble by our efforts. Well, prayerlessness is pride. Prayerlessness is pride. It's practical atheism in the most real sense. It's knowing that you have the ability to talk to your Heavenly Father who loves you and knows all and gives you strength every day. And yet you choose not to talk to Him. It's being asked the million dollar question on the game show and having a lifeline left with a friend on the other end whose expertise is in that field. And yet because you want to win the money uh, by your own abilities, your own knowledge, you choose not to call that friend. That's us when we don't pray. Except over and over and over. Million dollar question after million dollar question. We refuse to speak to God in our own pride. You see, that's why prayer is, in many ways, the most active and perhaps boldest act of humility we could take. It's a direct attack on pride to come before God in prayer and to worship Him. To come before God in prayer and to acknowledge sin and confess it. To thank Him for all He has done and continues to do to come before Him in prayer and to seek His will by letting our requests be made known to Him. Famous Christian dead guy Andrew Murray wrote a book on humility, and he also wrote a different book on prayer, and they've got a lot of overlap. He said this of humility. Now, when I read this, you might think by the end of the quote that this quote started with the word prayer, but it starts with the word humility. Murray says this, Humility is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. That's humility. To be able to do that. To have that kind of blessed home in the Lord. You see, prayer reorients our hearts. It puts us in our proper place before God and it refreshes our purpose in living for Him. As we bow the knee before the Father, we are tangibly submitting our will to His in everything. And we're asking for His help actively. No matter the circumstance, we can come to Him and, and do that. That's the beauty of the finished work of Christ. We have full and final access to the Father through prayer because of what He has done. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then with confidence 
draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. GOC, let's put aside our pride and in humility regularly come before the throne of grace. There's another somewhat related fruit of humility, and that is that humility, number five, humility confesses sin. Humility confesses sin. If we are rightly assessing ourselves before God and in light of the gospel and before other people against whom we sin, God himself and breach of the gospel and sinning sometimes and often against others, if we are rightly assessing ourselves consistently, we will inevitably see our own sin. And the question is, at that point, what do we do with it? When we see our own sin, the Bible tells us we ought to confess it. We ought to confess it and hold on to the precious and faithful forgiveness found in Christ. 1 John 1, 9. Turn there just to see it, because it's such an important verse that maybe some of you grew up memorizing, but you need to see it. 1 John 1, 9. It's a landmark verse for the everyday Christian. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What precious truth. What a precious promise we have in this verse. In our pride, though, our mentality is to think that it is better just to let bygones be bygones. To not acknowledge and deal with our sin. Maybe even because of the potential consequences that might come. Uh, we'd rather deal with conflict by ignoring it like we do with each other. You know, guys at least. You have conflict and all you have to do is just go play basketball together or play a video game together. and It's all good all of a sudden. We'd rather just deal with our sin that way. Do something else and forget about it and, and not confess it. But consider the heart of the psalmist. What we ought to be doing. Psalm 32. Turn there. Psalm 32. This is what humility does when it realizes its own sin. It cries out to God like the psalmist in Psalm 32. Look in the beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Those verses 3 and 4, by the way, are describing what it's like to not confess your sin. You waste away. You groan all day long. You're sluggish. Your strength is dried up like the heat of summer. But look at verse 5. It's what we are to do. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when, when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. This is the model for how we ought to deal with our sin. We ought to confess and find a hiding place in God. Uh, before the waters rush in and it's too late to confess, we ought to bring our sin to the Lord and rejoice in the forgiveness we have. Never to presume upon it, but to expect it because we know God is great and is loving and is forgiving. Friends, how we usually ignore our sin isn't the picture the psalmist paints, is it? We are to uncover. We are to acknowledge our sin. And in humility, come before Him who will cover our transgression, who will not count iniquity against us on account of Christ. A humble heart rightly recognizes sin and does so with a sort of confidence in the faithfulness of God to forgive, 1 John 1.9. And so there is no insecurity, there is no fear, there is no reason to hide, there is no doubt. Let us humbly confess our sins to God and to one another when we need to, and then find continuing grace and forgiveness in the gospel. We turn the corner a little bit for number six. Humility not only confesses sin, but next, humility readily receives input, admonition, and even criticism. Humility readily receives input, admonition, and even criticism. You see, the humble heart that is keenly aware of its own sin is cognizant of the fact that there is always likely sin or weakness or blind spots that one is not aware of currently. And humility then in the pursuit of seeking to consistently assess oneself rightly is open to the input of others. It's not a correct assessment if you're not aware of something in your life, whether it be sin or weakness or a blind spot. And so humility is open to input and to admonition and, and rebuke and criticism. Consider the posture of the Proverbs in this, something that we don't like to hear, but Proverbs 12:15, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Or Proverbs 15.32, whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. That is to say, it's, to, it, it's better for you to go through the tough thing of hearing what you don't want to hear than to regret it later and be the fool in Proverbs, to be the one who ignores instruction and despises himself. This kind of input can take different forms. It's not always correction or rebuke. It can be. It can also be advice or encouragement that we ought to, in humility, be willing to receive. 
that we ought not to be on our own island so much that we just have our own correct assessment of ourselves. We need the input of others. And you know it, sometimes this input is uninvited or unexpected. Whatever form it takes, we ought to consider these truths found in Proverbs 27.6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And then Psalm 141 verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me, rebuke me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. And that's an argument of greater to lesser. You see, if our hearts are ready even for harsh criticism from others, criticism that we can see and find even some kind of benefit, our hearts ought also to be open to all other kinds of input. Lesser than that. Nicer than that. We need input because we need help. In humility, we ought to believe the best and the benefit of the input we're receiving from others. Taking whatever we can from input. We often say, take the meat and spit out the bones. Well, sometimes there are, there's more meat and less bones than you'd like to assess of someone's input. Be gracious in this. And then use all of that to perhaps examine yourself. Perhaps to shine light on a blind spot in your life. And all along, think well of their intentions and Trust that the Spirit is working in their lives too and maybe their input in your life is part of that Spirit's work. You all have driven long enough, either with your folks or with your friends, to have experienced the pleasure of a backseat driver. Maybe on the way here some of you experienced that. When you have a backseat driver, you can do one of two things. With some other things in between, but Mainly these two things. You can essentially shush them, ignore them, disregard what they're saying, or you can consider their words even at the untimeliest of moments. The backseat driver. Humility helps us to welcome the backseat driver in the worst of cases. It helps us to welcome input and correction and rebuke. Humility dials down our defensive tendency. And instead of seeing others as backseat drivers, we see them simply as concerned friends, as brothers and sisters, who, who may have a maybe even untimely uh, piece of counsel for us. And humility allows us, though, in those times, to earnestly consider such counsel and not be so easily dismissive. I think there's one other kind of input that we need to just stop and consider for a moment that most of us aren't great at receiving, and that's encouragement. You see, humility is not puffed up with pride, but it is willing to hear someone else say something good about something you've done, knowing that you can give God the glory for it. We so often deflect and dismiss encouragement, but we ought to simply let our souls be encouraged when someone takes the time to encourage us. And so positive or neg negative, humility readily receives input and then thoughtfully processes the benefit. Number seven, the seventh fruit of humility is that humility forgives 
others. Humility forgives others. You don't need to turn there, but consider Ephesians 1.7, speaking of the forgiveness we have in the gospel. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. The humble heart, the one that rightly assesses itself, understands and consistently wonders at this radical forgiveness offered in the gospel. Humility often thinks of the crazy forgiveness that is not deserved or earned or even wanted at times that is given in the gospel. And then when wronged, is compelled to in like manner forgive others. In our pride, we, we think we deserve to be treated correctly. We're entitled to our own sense of fairness and our own sense of what the timing of something should be, our own sense of consideration from others. And in our pride, when those expectations aren't met, we love to hold it over other people. We enjoy letting that play out and watching other people suffer when they know they've done wrong and we haven't extended forgiveness quite yet. And even when they seek forgiveness, our prideful hearts hesitate. Yet, GOC, the truly humble heart is one that remembers that it has been forgiven, that it has been forgiven for all sins past and present and future. And a humble heart triangulates correctly such that God is the one who has forgiven first. And God is the one who has forgiven most. And God is the one who will always forgive the penitent. And it allows us, as hard as it is sometimes, to truly forgive. And so even when someone may wrong you repeatedly, seemingly unaware and unaffected at just how willing you are to look past a wrong, or you are caused such deep and unimaginable pain by someone else. Humility helps us to forgive because we have been forgiven much. The instruction is simple in God's word, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Parallel passage, Colossians 3.13, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Friends, when we rightly assess ourselves in light of the forgiveness found in the gospel, forgiving others may still be difficult, but it becomes a humble act of worship and submission to God. Humility forgives others. These next two, numbers eight and nine, go together in a sense. And they further deepen our understanding of how we are to exercise humility toward other people in our lives. Number eight, humility listens to others. Humility listens to others. We know James 1.19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, 
slow to anger. Simply, as we seek to count others more significant than ourselves, as we seek to understand and serve the interests of others around us more even than our own interests, how can we do that if we're not aware of those interests? How can we do that? How can we count others more significant than ourselves if we are not listening to others' needs and others' pains and others' questions and others' thoughts? We must listen. We must resist the temptation to assume we know what someone else's situation is. We must resist the temptation to be high on our own uninformed opinion about other people. We must not harbor quiet, even judgmental takes on other people. We must listen for understanding. Listen for what the opportunities are. Listen and then maybe ask more questions. Listen and then remember what we've heard. Listen and then follow up with friends. Listen and take action to minister and to care and to love other people. And so very simply, humility bites its tongue and opens its ears. And humility's ears go hand in hand with humility's mouth. Number nine, humility speaks graciously. Humility speaks graciously. Turn to Ephesians 4, 29. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as only such, uh, uh, sorry, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Humility listens before speaking, and then when speaking, speaks graciously and appropriately. Ephesians 4.29 helps us to see only such as is good for building up, and then as fits the occasion, and then further characterized by it giving grace to those who hear. Proverbs 25.11 gives the value of this kind of appropriate, gracious speech. It says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Uh, Our speech, fitly spoken, appropriate, and gracious, is more valuable than the things around it. In all honesty, most of us, though, are looser with our lips, more brash with our speech than we'd like to admit. We speak when we want, however we want, and probably a little bit too much overall. Now, our pride in our knowledge, our pride in our opinions, our pride in our thoughts, as grandiose as they are, our pride in even our own humor is so obvious in our speech. This isn't a case to just be silent the whole day, but instead we ought to Consider that in humility, we should use our words as the currency by which we can invest in our relationships with others, seeking to build them up as a fellow part of the church or as to be a witness and a testimony for those who don't know Christ. 
We ought to use our words to build up, to encourage, to comfort, to challenge others. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, turn there. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is often a counseling verse. It's an empathy verse. But it speaks to the empathy we need in our speech. How we need to consider the appropriateness of our words. You see, we can't do these things in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 without speaking. It says there, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and then be patient with them all. Grace on campus, I believe if we use our words well, it will not only demonstrate the humility in our hearts, but it will also facilitate the love that we are to have for one another. Uh, We will see the humility of our words unite and build up God's people. So humility listens and then it speaks graciously. Finally, the tenth and last fruit of humility is that humility is eager to acknowledge the work of God in others. Humility is eager to acknowledge the work of God in others. True Christian humility recognizes evidences of grace and evidences of growth in others and points them out. This whole series has rightfully been about your and my growth in humility. It's been a personal thing. Our focus necessarily has been on learning to kill pride and how to rightly assess ourselves. It's been about how to yourself be humble. And yet this series should bring us to a point where in growing in humility, it causes us to look up and to look around us and see the wonderful fruit of what God is doing in others, not just in ourselves. How His Spirit is growing those around you in Christ-like humility and to see that and acknowledge that and then rejoice in that. And I would say not just in this series, but all the time. In our pride, in our quiet competition, we're so often focused only on ourselves. In fact, maybe even hoping in, a, in the most ironic way that we are growing spiritually more than other people. That God is working in our lives in ways that we think He isn't in others. We're so unique and so special and growing so quickly. And we like to think that. And then even when we do see God working in others... We're slow to affirm it, and we're slow to celebrate what God is doing in others. True Christian humility is eager to see the work of God in others, and to acknowledge it, and to rejoice in it. There's so many places we could go to see this in 
Paul's letters, to see Paul's example of how he so readily recognizes the work of God in the churches that he writes to. It's all over 1 Thessalonians, all over Colossians, as we've seen. Uh, it's all over Philippians. Uh, I want to look at 1 Corinthians, because 1 Corinthians is uh, a book, and 2 Corinthians is as well. The, the Corinthian books are books that are full of correction, uh, full of chastisement, full of pointing to holiness and spurring sinners on to repentance. But in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul takes the time before he launches into his correction to affirm the work of God in this church. This church that is wrought with sin and problems and divisions. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I think as modern day Christians, we read that passage and we think, yeah, it's Paul greeting his friends. But if you continued to read the book of 1 Corinthians, you would see how much those words meant to the church in Corinth. A church torn apart by terrible sin. A church divided over who they should follow in the faith. A church wrought with so much ugly sin. And yet, and yet Paul takes the time here to say, I give thanks to you. I give thanks to God always for you. You were called. You are enriched in Him. You will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. Humble and encouraging words. Eager to see the work of God in others. Friends, we ought to make a habit out of acknowledging others' growth in grace. Of speaking of it directly to one another, face to face, in a word of encouragement. And then ultimately, together, praising God for it. And then prayerful for more, expectant of more, eager to see God work. Humility has this Philippians 1 mentality when it sees gospel progress of any kind. Rejoicing if Christ is proclaimed. Rejoicing if Christ is honored in someone's life. And that heart of rejoicing ought to be our heart whether it be someone's salvation or someone's sanctification or someone's success. As we seek to regard others more significant than ourselves, we ought to be eager to acknowledge God's work in the lives of others. These are the fruits of humility. This is what humility could and should 
look like in the life of someone who consistently and accurately assesses him or herself in view of God and others and the gospel. This is a humble life of worship to God, bearing this fruit of humility, these habits and this character, expressing gratitude, showing dependence, knowing we need help, seeking God's wisdom on our knees in prayer, confessing our sin, being willing to receive input of any kind, forgiving others, listening to others, speaking graciously of others, and eager to see the work of God in one another. Now, I'm no South Campus guy, but I know enough to know that fruit has seeds, right? That's why tomatoes are a fruit. We can talk after. Seeds you can replant them and grow more in like kind. This fruit of humility is like that. It has seeds that sprout more humility. You you see, if this kind of character and these kinds of habits are flowing out of your heart of humility and into your life, There is a cyclical effect. This God-wrought wonderful effect. These evidences, these fruits of humility will produce even more provision for growth in humility. And so pursue humility and these fruits will flow out. And also dedicate yourself to these ten things and more growth in humility will come. Truly tonight in looking at the fruits of humility we've seen the truth of Proverbs 22.4 that says this, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. That's the kind of life upon which God looks. Well, GOC, next week as we conclude our series on the virtue of humility, we'll end right just back where we began in Philippians 2, looking at the greatest example of humility in our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We see these fruits of humility, these things that come out of 